My name is Doug Payne. I want to welcome you here. Um, the lighting is already bad in this uh, auditorium, and the reflection from this means I can barely see that there are people out there. So that's okay. That's okay. The, this is the Lord's will, and uh, we will be happy about it. Just a, a word about the scripture readings. I don't know if you've noticed or not, for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing uh, an Old Testament reading because we've been in the New Testament. And because of our lack of time together, we don't have Sunday school, and we don't have other education times, just as your pastor, I I want to see us growing in our knowledge of God's Word, both in Old and New Testament. So, Lord willing, we'll be picking an Old Testament passage when we're in the New Testament to read from, and a New Testament passage when we're in the Old Testament to read from. And that will just help us as we gain biblical knowledge and and walk together that way. Um, Last week, we... Well, we are in our series, Unity and Diversity. It's four weeks. Last week was uh, talking about our unity in Christ uh, because of our union with Christ. And uh, we, we traced that out last week uh, through creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created us, that is Christians, for unity. He created man and woman to be unified together and glorifying his name. And then as they would have children and populate the earth, those children were supposed to glorify God as, as they lived together in unity. And we saw how we lost that in the fall, Genesis 3. The unity became disunity. Sin brought depravity, brought disunity to the human race. And so we've seen it expressed in sexism and racism and all kinds of hate, all kinds of hate that you probably experienced and have seen online. But that's not where it ended. We saw how we lost it in the fall, but how Christ, the second Adam, regained it for us in redemption. And he redeemed us by going to the cross, by living, dying, and rising from the dead, and ascending to the Father. Christ regained it and assured us that we actually have unity as Christians, whether you see it or not. You are unified in Christ. And so he says time and time again, you are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Not you as just as an individual, but we as a family, we're in Christ as a church. And so that means we're, we're going to have to treat each other in certain ways. We're going to have to love one another, bear with one another, live in harmony with one another. And that unity regained we have seen, we saw at the end, it will be realized. You will finally realize the unity that you have with one another, even though there's a whole lot of diversity and sin mixed in there. You know, a, a comedian named Emo Phillips, he tried to illustrate the fact that though we have unity, uh, it doesn't seem like we do. We, well, we don't have it perfectly, right? Maybe you've noticed that. Like, even though we say we have unity in the church, all kinds of things threaten to divide us, and there's different denominations and all those kind of things. And he tells this story, and he says, you know, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man. He was about to jump off the bridge, and I said, don't do it. You have so much to live for. And he said, like what? And uh, I said to him, well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. That's great. Are you a a Christian or a Buddhist? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, that's great. Me too. I'm a Christian too. Are you a a Baptist or an Episcopalian? 
He said, I'm a Baptist. I said, that's great. I'm also a Baptist. Are you a Southern Baptist or a Northern Baptist? He said, I'm a Southern Baptist. I said, that's great. So am I. I said, are you a, a general Southern Baptist or a Reformed Southern Baptist? He said, a Reformed Southern Baptist. So am I. That's, that's amazing. And do you use the London Baptist Confession, 1689, or do you use the 1833 New Hampshire Confession? And he said, I use the 1833 New Hampshire Confession. And I said, die, heretic, and pushed him off. Now, sadly, that is all there is a little bit of truth in some of that, isn't there? There's truth in a little jest. Why don't we experience unity perfectly? We have it in Christ. We've seen that in the, in the epistles. In Christ, we have everything we need, and we're one in him. But why is there this struggle for unity? And I, one of the reasons, this isn't the only reason, but one of the reasons is that there is a grace in our diversity. Sometimes we see our diversity as disunity, and God does not want us to see that at all. So I'm going to argue this morning that there is a grace in our diversity. There's a grace in, this, in our struggle as we have diverse opinions and diverse uh, personalities and characters. There's a struggle to work together for unity, but in that, God is glorified. Christ is made much of. And grace shows us how in the gospel as it teaches and empowers us to receive one another with different opinions, it's actually unifying us. And one way we are meant to express this unity is through our diversity, the way people look, the way people act, the, the backgrounds you come from, the color you are, the language you speak. We are meant to, with one voice, glorify God. It's something like a symphony, if you've ever been to a symphony, there's different sections in the symphony of, of stringed in, instruments and wood wind instruments and brass instruments and timpani and all of them together, though they have different sounds and, and some are loud and some are supposed to be loud at one time and quiet at another, they're all working together in different ways to create movements in the symphony that bring, well, glory to the author of that symphony. It sounds beautiful. And that's what the Christian churches and all of our diversity, we're all making these noises and we're playing our instrument at just the right time with just the right note tuned to our, the great one, Jesus Christ. And, and all in the same movement, we're saying glory be to Christ because of our unity. And we're going to look at this through Romans 14. So if you're not there yet, will you turn there? One, the Roman church was a local church in Rome filled with Jews and Gentiles, people that previously hated each other. Now they're living together in one body. They lived under the rule of a man named Nero, who is reported that he set the city on fire and blamed it on the Christians. These people became Christians at great cost to themselves through their reputation and their, actually even their well-being at times. Tim Keller explains the context of uh, Romans 
the book of Romans like this. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul explains the gospel. Right? And essentially what he is saying is, we are justified in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are simultaneously just in God's sight, justified in God's sight, simultaneously just and sinners. It's what Luther said, simul ustus et peccator. We are at the same time righteous and sinful. How is that possible? And if we fully understand the gospel, chapters 1 through 5, and experience the gospel, chapters 6 through 8, the result will be grateful, joyous love with one another. Another way to put this is that there are indicatives and imperatives, right? Uh, Romans chapters 1 through 11 are the indicatives. These are the facts about the gospel. This is what God has done for you. In Christ, God justifies you through faith, the grace alone, through faith alone. That's a, that's a statement of fact. And now, in, in chapters 12 through 16, he's, he's switching to imperatives. He's going from instruction, this is the way it is, to exhortation, this is how you should live. This is, this is true about you. Now live it out. You are one in Christ. Now act like it. And he does all of this. All of his imperatives are rooted in the indicatives. You can look at chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you. I'm asking you. I'm begging you. Therefore, brothers, by what? Maybe you said it, and I just couldn't hear you. By the mercies of God. Right? Chapters 1 through 11 are the mercies of God. This is the mercies of God in Christ, the indicative. I appeal to you. By the mercies of God, offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He's not saying offer your body a living sacrifice and then God will accept you. He's saying God has accepted you, now just offer it. It's already his. And as he moves through in his imperatives, everything Paul says that we must do finds its genesis an ongoing power in what has been done for us in the work of Christ, the work of God through Christ, by the, applied by the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 12, he's imploring us then to serve one another in the church through the varying grace gifts he's given us. Do it all in love. God's assigned us various, various gifts of grace. Use those gifts to build the church up. In chapter 13, he says, while you're doing that, you must honor the God-given authority over you. Remember who that was? Nero. And I don't have to say it, but I'm going to, right? If the Roman church is supposed to honor Nero, we can honor the governing authority over us, can't we? Whoever it is, whoever it will be after November 3rd, whatever it is. God says, because of the mercies of God, you can do this. Love one another, honor the governing authority, and do all of this in love. You're to, you, you may owe nobody anything. Pay taxes, pay honor, pay respect. You can't owe anything except love. Keep on loving. 
That's a debt you'll keep paying, love and love and love. Because when we love, we keep the commandments. It's in this context that he brings up those who are weak and those who are strong. You'll see it. You see in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Now, as soon as I brought up weaker and stronger, everyone said, I know a weaker brother. <laughs> I'm the strong one. I know a weak one. They might be in this room. Uh, well, the reality is we're all strong and we're all weak on various issues, okay? So just, it takes a lot of, uh, uh, it takes a lot of um, self-awareness to figure out where you are the weak brother or sister. And Paul tells us, in love, how are we going to receive how are, we going to, how are we going to have this unity and diversity? How are we going to be this symphony of praise to God as we express our diversity, our unity through our diversity? And he says, by three things. By receiving one another because God is Lord of the conscience. Second, by refusing to despise or judge one another because of differing opinions. And third, by renewing one another through righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. How are we going to express our unity and diversity that, like a symphony, gives praise to God? We do it by receiving, refusing, and renewing. So number one, express our unity and diversity by receiving the weaker, because God is Lord of the conscience. Romans 14, 1 through 9. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one, excuse me, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you? to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is God's holy word. So what should we do with weak people? Do you know we have them in our church? We have them in the body of Christ? Do you know that you might be one of the weak ones? I am definitely the weaker brother on some issues. And, and, and we want to know, like, what is this conscious issue that we're talking about? Well, Paul tells us 
welcome them, but not to quarrel over disputable matters or opinions or disputable matters. These are things that weaker brother has opinions about certain things. The stronger brother has opinions about certain things. And, and how we're supposed to act towards one another really shows how we're unified in Christ. So Paul brings up two things. What should we do when, when the weak brother has a conscience issue and he brings it to our attention? Paul tells us we should do two things. We should welcome the weaker brother. Did you see that? He who is weak in the faith, welcome him. That's a, that word is just a receiving. It's actually a taking aside and, and having a conversation with them. So this person knows that they're important and loved and received. Paul tells Philemon that, you know, uh, there's this slave and he's going back to his, his master. And Paul tells Philemon to accept Onesimus. Do I have that right? Now, I, I do this often. I, I know the story, but then I get the details mixed up. One or the other, it's Philemon or Onesimus is the slave. And he's saying, receive the slave as you would receive me. Same word. Welcome him. Take him aside. Welcome him. Now, Paul uses the same, or uh, uh, excuse me, Luke uses the same word in Acts 18.26. When Apollos, the preacher, comes to town, and Priscilla and Aquila uh, hear his preaching, they hear that he only knows the baptism of John, but he's convincing the Jews mightily of the faith. And so what do they do? They welcome him aside, and they explain to him in, an, in a way of grace, without quarreling, about the baptism of John, how Jesus is now giving a different kind of baptism. This is the way we're supposed to act with one another with different opinions. Receive them. Take them aside. And now, we're not taking them aside to convince them necessarily. There may be a time for that. But Paul's just saying, just welcome them. Receive them into the family. Receive them into your home. Just love them like God loves them. And the second thing he says is we should not do is to quarrel over these opinions. So don't welcome into your home and say, okay, now that I got you here and I fed you, now I want to argue about everything we disagree with. <laughs> That's not what he says we're supposed to do. Welcome them, but not to argue or quarrel over these opinions. Now, friends, these are disputable matters. These are, these are things we disagree about. Okay, I'm going to, later on, I'm going to talk about a theological triage. Uh, but these are things that uh, are not as clear in Scripture, okay? So, um, you're supposed to welcome them, and you are not supposed to quarrel over them. Quarrel with them over these things. And here's, you know, here's what John Stott says. How dare we reject a person who God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude towards other people should be is to determine what God's attitude toward them is. This principle is even better than the golden rule to treat others as we would treat ourselves. It's safe to treat others as we want to be treated, but it's even safe, it's safer still to treat them as God does. The second reason he gives to receive is that God is Lord of the conscience. Receive them because God has welcomed them. Don't quarrel with them. Also receive them because God is Lord of the conscience. Did you notice that in five through nine? Who 
is your master. Jesus Christ. He's a kind master. So who is another Christian's master? Jesus Christ. And all of us, we live and we die before him. We stand before him. And it's the master who gets to say uh, whether someone is judged or not. So the issue that we could be dealing with could be something like vegetarianism. That's what it was in the text. Vegetarianism or drinking or observing certain days. Could be observing Halloween. The principle is be fully convinced in your own mind. Are you the weaker or stronger brother? Be fully convinced about this in your own mind. If you're the stronger brother, you're supposed to welcome them because God is Lord of the conscience. You are not. I am not Lord of your conscience. I cannot bind your conscience. And so whatever side you, dis- you take on disputable matters, on these matters, you do or you don't do it for the Lord, right? I, I you know, observe Halloween for these reasons, and I think it honors the Lord. I don't observe Halloween for these reasons, and I think it honors the Lord. There be some, maybe some among us who are like, I- I'm not even sure that's a conscience issue. So friends, we have to work hard together in this symphony of praise towards God to display our unity in our diversity. Why? You'll notice in verse 9, because the Lord lived and died for you and for the person you want to disagree with. What does he say? For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. God is the only Lord of the conscience. He's, he's actually Lord of your conscience. You are not Lord of your conscience. He's, Lord's, he's the Lord of other people's conscience, not you. I should have... I, I just thought about this just now. Maybe I should define conscience. That would have been probably helpful. Uh, conscience, you know, is, is uh, I, I think I read in this book, which is a very helpful book that the elders are reading, by the way. Conscience, what it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ. They describe it as being our consciousness or our awareness of what we believe to be right and wrong. So this consciousness on disputable matters is what we believe to be right and wrong, and yet... The Lord, God, Jesus Christ is the only Lord of all of our consciences. You are not Lord of your conscience, and you are not Lord of my conscience, and vice versa. So we receive one another because God is Lord of the conscience. But secondly, the way we display our unity and diversity, the way we have this symphony of praise towards God, the way we play our instruments that resound to his praise is by refusing to despise or judge one another because of different opinions. Verse 10 through 12 says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or you, why do you despise your brothers? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess or praise God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The motive that Paul gives us for not 
judging or despising, disagreeing members is future, the future judgment seat of God where we give an account. I don't know everything that that means. Maybe this is a disputable matter among us. I, I don't know everything that's going to happen at the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, but we do know there is an accounting. The other thing we know, even from this own book in Romans 8.1, is that there is no condemnation. There's no final judgment coming at the judgment seat of Christ. And maybe something like in Corinthians, as we bring our works before him, and some are, are uh, burned like wood, hay, and stubble. Those that are built on gospel motives and gospel work are kept. I don't know everything it means. I know we will not be condemned, but I know we'll have to give an account. And, and Paul says, refuse to despise or judge one another because of differing opinions based on the fact that you will stand before Jesus. We will give an account of everything before him. And in the end, we will be accepted by him. Paul says, even if our works are burned up, we will be saved alive. So if you have judged or despised another person, turn to Christ. He is your only hope for a welcome. By refusing to despise or judge one another, we show our unity in Christ. And, 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 and one motive is that we will stand before God, before Jesus but the second future motivation is that we will all give praise to God. Did you notice that in verse 11? As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Everyone in this room will bow before God. Friend, if, if you have something against a member of this church or a member of another church or someone in the body of Christ, think about it. Think about that thing, that opinion, that disputable matter that you're holding against that brother or sister. And then think about eternity where all of us together will be bowing our knee before God and singing praise together before him. You are going to be a brother and sister of, of the Christians in this room forever. Forever. Does that opinion you hold matter that much? Does that disputable matter matter that much? We will be worshiping our great God forever and ever. Spend eternity with one another doing that. Do you want to judge or despise over that issue, really? That brings the question, though, how do we know what issues we should be making a defense for, doesn't it? Because it doesn't mean that all of our disputable matters are something we should put to the side. If someone in this room says, you know, I have a lot of friends, I don't think Jesus is fully God, but for unity's sake, I'm going to put that aside and try to be unified with them. You can't do that. That's doctrinal minimalism in a way that thwarts the gospel. It, it, it makes the gospel look like what it isn't. So we can't be doctrinal minimalists and we can't be doctrinal sectarians. So how do we know which issues are we supposed to robustly argue over? 
Which issues will actually separate us as local churches and, and make us go to a different kind of church? And which issues can we live together in, in the same church, and it doesn't matter as much? It, it won't separate us. Albert Moeller, Dr. Albert Moeller has something he's called, as, as far as I know, he's the first one to coin this, the theological triage. And a theological triage is, is based on a medical triage. Uh, I'm not a doctor, and I've never been in the medical field, but uh, doctors in an ER situation or on the battlefield, they have to triage patients, right? When there's multiple people hurt or sick, they have to decide which ones to treat. They have to say, this person uh, has an amputated arm, we have to stop the bleeding and do surgery, um, or we have to treat this cold. Do you see which one's more important? And, and so the same thing is in, in, in theology, in the Bible, there are disputable matters that are more and less important. We, we must not say, if we say, how can you say one doctrine is less important than another? If it's true, it's all important. And we become doctrinal sectarians and we say, everything's a first order issue. Or we say, you know, the unity is so important that, you know, everything's a third order issue and we'll just agree to disagree and we can figure it out and it'll all be fine and, and, and Jesus will love us. Now it's true that Jesus will love us, but I don't think it's true that everything's going to be fine. So, in the triage, Albert Muller is telling, is telling us there are different orders of issues. First order, secondary, and tertiary. And uh, if you want a, an expansion of this uh, triage, Gavin Ortland wrote a book, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for a Theological Triage. I, I highly recommend it. And he sort of expands a little bit what uh, Dr. Muller is talking about. But basically, I think I have a slide for Yes, okay. Uh, basically, and Gary Bashirs has come up with these words, die for, divide for, debate, and decide for. And I'm collapsing debate and decide into the third, just to make it simpler, okay? So what do we do when we're trying to figure out if this issue is something that, that we should be arguing about? Is this issue something we, we, we should be actually quarreling about or it's something we need to take a step back on or it's something we just need to be, it's fine, whatever. You can, you can decide whatever you want. And Gary Bashirs from Western Seminary says, uh, has a helpful framework for this. He says, in navigating divisive issues, I have found it most helpful to distinguish levels of clarity, right? That is, whatever your issue is, drinking alcohol or the virgin birth of Christ which one is more clear in Scripture, eschatology or, or atonement? So there are levels of certainty. What is the Scripture most clear about? Then I can differentiate what is essential from that which is merely controversial. He says, for me, this breaks down into four levels. I'm collapsing it into three. First are the things I would die for. To deny them knowingly would demonstrate that you are a heretic, right? He doesn't use that word, but I know. Out or outside of gospel orthodoxy, or that you're not a Christian at all, you've never repented of your sins and turned to Christ. You know, the full deity and humanity of Christ, that's a first order issue. In navigating divisive issues, then we move on 
He says, I found it most helpful to distinguish levels of certainty. Second are, are, are the things I would divide for. These are doctrines are urgent for church unity. We are Christians, fellow members of the same body of Christ, but we won't be able to be in the same local fellowship. It just depends on certain levels of conviction about baptism. It, it, you know, um, if you are a convinced credo Baptist and you think it's a sin to baptize an infant, you're not going to be able to join a PCA church, a Presbyterian church. But you can still say, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though I think they're wrong, I think in their conscience, they are convinced and I'm going to support their ministry. These are things that we are going to divide for, uh, but we're going to still have, you know, broader fellowship. The third are these things I would just debate or decide for. So debate are they're important to Christian theology. These are issues important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. Like using real wine or grape juice in communion. What form of apologetics we use. Eschatology. They're, these things are important, but we're not, we're, we are, we're not dividing over them. We're not leaving the church over. And the fourth are things we decide for. These things are unimportant to our gospel witness and our ministry collaboration. You know, something like for parents, it's school choice, private, public, homeschool. They just are not important for our ministry collaboration of the gospel. Who we vote for. I'll just leave it there. So understanding and working through these issues will take humility, won't it? We'll have to have a low opinion of our own opinion. Maybe some of you are squirming right now as I even make some of these categories. You're saying, I don't think I would put that in that category. That's okay. Will you receive me? Will, or will you despise and judge? Or, or will I despise or judge you? Or will I welcome you as a brother or sister in Christ? So we are... Friends, we're, tr we're trying to welcome one another and we're refusing to despise or judge one another, right? That's, that's the issue. You, stronger brothers, sisters in the faith, are you going to look down on people who have a different view than you do on a disputable matter? Weaker brother or sister, are you going to judge your stronger brother and sister depending on the issue? You know, let's say you have always thought it was a sin to drink root beer in your life. I'm getting this from this book, by the way. You thought it was always a sin to drink root beer in your life. And someone has come into your church and they're drinking root beer all the time. They're having it for their meals. They have it when they wake up in the morning. And you're like, man, this is a sin. How, how, are you going to, how, are you, how are you going to work with that person? How, how are, you, are you going to despise them or will you welcome them? Refuse. Jesus wants us to refuse to despise and judge. He wants us to love. Love. And this will express our unity. This will express the, the glory of God to, to, to the expansion, to the to the unseen forces to those around us. This will dis display his manifold character when we refuse to despise and judge but receive and welcome.
And the third thing is the way we express our unity and diversity, we become the symphony of praise to God is by renewing one another. In verses 13 through 23, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 12, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to put Excuse me, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is clean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be evil, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and, who, and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned. If he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You know, it, bear, it, it falls to the strong to bear with the weak. Those whose consciences have been cleaned by the word of God in order to use their liberty are to use their liberty for others and not for themselves primarily. They're supposed to use it for the good of others. This is renewing one another. How are we going to do that as a church, as a people of Christ? Will we, if someone looks at something you do, like drinking root beer, and says, hey, I'm not convinced that sin. Can we have a conversation about it? Hey, and let's meet, you know, let's meet at such and such a restaurant, and are you going to show up and order a root beer and show them how you have liberty to do this? Is that the way God wants us to interact with one another? Now, in all honesty, you have every right. God has cleansed everything, and you have the right to drink it. And if your conscience is clear, that's great. The problem is you don't live to yourself, and you don't die to yourself. You have another brother or sister who is, even if their conscience is weak, they are stumbling over this thing. So what is this stumbling all about then? Am I just supposed to let the stumbler decide everything I do? I'm not going to be able to do anything if I do that. The, the weakest, grumpiest person in this congregation is going to control us, and no one's going to want to come to this church because there's going to be no joy. Is that what you're thinking? This is not what God wants for us. So what is this stumbling? The, the stumbling is this, okay? The weaker Christian is tempted to, when the weaker a Christian is tempted to ignore their conscience, let's say on issues of alcohol. They've grown up in a teetotaling house that has taught them that alcohol is sin. They have newly come to faith, but they've held on to this belief 
Now they come, you know, they come into our houses and they, they see maybe us, maybe some of the stronger brothers drinking alcohol to the glory of God. We're not abusing it. We're, we're using it to celebrate God and, and for enjoyment. And they come in and their conscience is, is pricked by this. And they're not saying, hey, I'm really offended at this. What they're saying is, well, I think this is sin, but they're doing it. It must be okay, so I'm going to do it. That is allowing someone else's conscience to govern yours, not the Lord's. So if, Paul is saying, if my liberty is going to make someone else stumble, that is, do something, even though they know it's sin, I am going to be willing to not do that thing for a while in order that they might be built up. You know, it, it is, I'll just repeat it again. She, you know, she is not yet convinced that this indifferent thing is okay. But she goes on to do it anyway. The weaker Christian must be convinced in his own mind. Weaker Christian, be convinced in your own mind and in your own conscience before you choose or go against conscience. Now, there's a couple of principles that God is Lord of the conscience. The other one is that we should usually obey our conscience. But sometimes our consciences can be misinformed or actually wrong. Friends, the weaker brother in this scenario is actually not correct. Paul is saying, give up your rights for the weaker brother. But they're actually not correct. And Paul says, in order to display our unity, we give up our rights for a time until God has convinced them. Since God is the only Lord of the conscience, then the only way we can go, the only way you can go against your conscience is if the word of God corrects your conscience. So maybe this person who has come to the understanding or have been taught the understanding that alcohol is wrong has now, you know, has now been, is this really true? And they search the word and they and they come to the conclusion, no, I think in moderation the use of alcohol is actually glorifying to God. And yet they, they sit before their first drink of alcohol and their conscience is still telling them, mm, I'm not sure, is this right? Is this right? What we're saying, what I think the Bible is saying is you are not going against your conscience. You are informing your conscience when you are convinced that the word of God has said this thing. It's true. It's okay to do it. Your conscience is still sinful. Your conscience is still hanging on to things that that will be fully redeemed one day. And so you can sit before you, you can sit before that decision with your conscience saying, I'm not sure. You say, I'm fully convinced by the word of God. I've talked to mature Christians in the faith. They're telling me that this is this is true. And and, and then it's okay. I, there's probably gonna be a million questions about that afterwards. So I'll be around if you want to talk. Um, just please. Don't judge me, and we'll receive each other well in these matters. So we renew each other by removing stumbling blocks. So remove the stumbling blocks from one another. Uh, That might be for your own conscience, but friend, if you're the stronger brother, you might have to just say, hey, I know this is okay. Uh, I'm not going to do it in front of them for a time. That highlights the gospel. You might say, I'm going to take, take a fast from this for a very long time, for a time, 
and that actually magnifies the gospel. And that's what Paul does. He has freedom to, to give up his rights in certain areas. God doesn't, he's, he's not saying you have to give them up. He's just saying don't do them in a way that would cause someone else to stumble. So when we give up our rights, we magnify the gospel. We highlight the gospel. When we, when we, when we pursue peace, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We serve Christ when we do this. By giving up our rights, we serve Christ. Christ honors us and accepts us. Accepts us. Did you see that? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ... in this world. It's the symphony of the church expressing their unity through their diversity and, and therefore glorifying God. We all play our different instruments. We not only love one another by loving one another well, we glorify God and the manifold wisdom of God to everyone and everything. So have your opinions. Think them out well. And love one another truly. And God's sustain. Let's pray.